Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. I am a very deep feeler. Um, and in contrast, my husband is a lot more of a practical thinker. So quite often, we can end up um, with quite different perspectives and ways of managing different scenarios that kind of come up in our lives. Um, and this morning, I want to talk a little bit about that, about perspective, um, particularly having a gospel-focused perspective. And you guys have been going through this series in the book of Acts, um, To the Ends of the Earth, uh, which has told the story of the disciples who were commissioned by Jesus to take the good news of the gospel to the rest of the world. And now you guys are ending the, the kind of, uh, you're nearing the end of this series. And this morning we've reached a chapter where the disciples reach Samaria and the gospel is shared there. And so we're going to see a variety of perspectives in this chapter that different people have. We're going to see how these believers began to be persecuted for their faith. And even in their persecution, they had a gospel-centered perspective. And then we're going to look at this call to have a gospel-centered perspective for our everyday lives. And then finally, we're going to learn how to stay faithful to this gospel-centered perspective, even when other things might feel easier or might seem more attractive to us. So we're going to read from Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 25. It should come up on the screen behind me as well. That's Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 25. And Saul approved of their killing him. So that's referring to the stoning of Stephen that you guys would have looked at last week. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralysed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practised sorcery in the city and amazed all of the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptised. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that Peter was, gi- sorry, that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, 
and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. <clears throat> After they had um, further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. So over the last few chapters in Acts, you guys will have seen that the story has been one of increasing opposition uh, for these early Christians. The heat has been vamping up and up. And now the church is really, really being persecuted. And so last week, you guys would have looked at the martyrdom of Stephen. So the atmosphere is tense, to say the least. And now in verses one to three of our passage this morning, we see that off the back of this, the Jews um, then began persecuting Christians more widely and more intensely. And the day of Stephen's stoning was the same day that all of this persecution broke out. That day was kind of like a tipping point for these Israelite leaders, for the Pharisees and the religious elite. They all just said, do you know what? Enough is enough. We've already arrested the the apostles. We're losing thousands of followers a day to this weird Messiah group. We've already killed one of their main leaders. Let's just finish the job. Let's just go crazy and start persecuting every single person who knows Jesus. And then Saul, better known as Paul, was one of the most zealous uh, and intense persecutors. It says that he went, ra- he went around ravaging the church and sent loads of men and women to prison for their faith in Jesus. And this was completely illegal. The Jews could not just do this. They would have needed to have um, the approval of the Roman officials, but they didn't even do this. They were so intense and hell-bent on this mission to persecute the, this new Christian movement that they just went ahead with it. And the moment this happens, as you can imagine, everyone starts to run away and disperse. They leave Jerusalem, they go to Judea, they go to Samaria, and they were scattered all over the place. But what we see is that God begins to work through the persecution. Verse 1 says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. The language used in this verse is a deliberate echo of Jesus' commission in chapter 1 of Acts. Jesus had asked his disciples to be his witnesses in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And now they were actually being scattered to those places. God was working even through this persecution to fulfill his purposes and send his people out. And in verse 4, we see the direct effect of this. Those who were being scattered used the opportunity to share the word of God in the places that they had fled to. And we get introduced to this character, Philip. Um, As this persecution is taking place, instead of just going to Judea, he goes to Samaria, uh, where these people called the Samaritans lived. And he proclaims the gospel, he heals people, literally takes demons out of people, and the entire city is absolutely amazed um, by this power that they're witnessing. And all these Samaritans end up becoming Christians and getting baptised. And this is literally the beginning of the fulfilment of what Jesus had been saying since Acts chapter 1. And what Philip does here by leaving Jerusalem and going to Samaria is completely shocking and crazy. 
because for hundreds of years, the Samaritans and the Jews had this feud. They absolutely hated each other. So this was not like Philip was just crossing over into Sheffield from Manchester to preach the gospel. Going to Samaria had major, major ramifications for this guy. And he knew it. He knew that the mandate was to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so that's what he does. His perspective was one focused on the kingdom of God. And what we see is that people start responding. God uses the persecution to work through his people. And churches were planted in the places where people were scattered to. And the gospel was spread. Back in uh, 2019, Tim Simmons took myself and a couple of others um, with him to a conference in Poland. And our friend Andre Bontarenko was there. Uh, and there were many other Ukrainian, Russian and Czech Christians and pastors and many of these people had already been displaced um, to neighbouring countries because of the ongoing conflict between Russia and the Ukraine. But I remember that they had some really, really incredible stories that actually sound fairly similar to many of the stories that we read about in the book of Acts. People losing their homes, losing family members, suffering unthinkable atrocities and then having to flee. And in these countries that they fled to, they began to learn new languages and plant new churches. God still works in the same way that he worked for the early church in Acts. His mission is that the gospel would be spread in our context, in our everyday lives, and also that it would be spread across the world. I remember about a year ago when um, the war on Ukraine hadn't long sort of uh, vamped up, and we were waiting to receive um, a video update on, on the situation from our friend Andre. But I remember that when we watched it, um, a lot of us were actually quite surprised um, at what he said. Um, I think it was very, very different to what a lot of us would have imagined he would have said. Uh, instead of kind of listing off the atrocities of what he'd seen or kind of giving kind of personal prayer requests for the situation, I remember the first thing that he said is, we are already seeing so many saved. And he predominantly spoke and asked for our prayer that more churches um, would be planted across Europe in places that people had been scattered to and that God's kingdom would be advanced. Can you imagine living with a perspective like this one in the face of um, your country being invaded by an, by an enemy, having to flee your country, losing your home, potentially losing family members? Still, the main thing that you're focused on is the kingdom of God. This is the perspective that the disciples had in the book of Acts. They suffered incredible persecution, but their perspective stayed on the mission at hand, on the commandment of Jesus to be my witnesses in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And like I mentioned earlier, what I'm really struck by from this passage is that the disciples were scattered by persecution, as was the case for Andre and his friends. It was suffering that caused their lives to be uprooted. And it was in that place that God began to move. And in our passage, we're given Philip as an example of someone whose persecution God worked through. It says in verses four to five, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. I wonder this morning, what are some of the areas of our lives that perhaps we feel like we've been scattered to, like these disciples were. We might not have been scattered by war or by persecution. Maybe it's a job you never wanted to end up in, or a city or a life situation that is painful, a family circumstance or a financial situation. Whatever it is, 
I want to encourage us this morning that God has a purpose for you here. It says in Psalm 126, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. There is purpose in our pain. God wants to redeem every single part of our stories for his glory. Now, I cannot pretend to understand what it's like um, to have to flee your home, um, what it's like to experience being a displaced person. Um, But about five years ago, I was living in Nicaragua in Latin America. And I went to do a year of working for a church out there. And it had been a fairly complicated year, to say the least. Um, And just as I was nearing the end, I had about two months left to go. And things were just uh, starting to work out bit by bit. The work I was involved in was finally going well. I was starting to see a little bit of breakthrough in what I was doing. I could just about see what God was doing there in that country. And at that point, um, a civil war broke out in the country. And I was evacuated out in the middle of the night with about 12 hours of notice. And I remember really distinctly feeling pretty confused by what God was doing. Aside from the the sadness of the atrocities of what was going on in the country and what I'd witnessed, there there was still so much more that I'd wanted to do and wanted to get finished. I believe that my mission was there in that place, but it was only really once I got home that God began to speak powerfully to my heart. He taught me how to rely on him, how to confide in him, Uh, and most importantly, he taught me that his mission is so much bigger than just my life. Uh, and and perhaps what I want to see happen in and through my life. The places that we're scattered to, whether that be geographically um, or emotionally or circumstantially, God has a plan for that place, for that season of our lives. And I can safely say that every single painful or difficult season that I've walked through, God has used and God has redeemed. And we know this to be true. It says it in Romans 8, 28, And we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. And perhaps it's difficult for us to see uh, kind of what that is in the moment. Um, But even when we don't understand, we can trust that God is still working. Christian writer Lisa Turkhurst uh, wrote, The most painful part of your process will also produce the most power in your life. Your pain will either be your prison or your platform, and this is your choice. This is the gospel-centred perspective that we need for our lives. Perhaps it's not comfortable, um, but we can ask ourselves this question. What is God wanting to do with me here? What is the need that I can help meet in this place? What knowledge or wisdom that was a painful lesson to learn at the time can I impart to others now? And so secondly... Another thing I think we can learn from this passage is that we need to have a gospel-centered perspective for our everyday lives. It doesn't just have to be when we're in the middle of a really hard time or walking through a painful season um, that God will use us. I'm thinking now about the Samaritans and the new Christians that were born out of Jesus' great commission. When life was mundane um, again and things kind of seemed to go back to normal, how did they spread the gospel then? We recently had um, our church-wide prayer week, and the theme of it was to the ends of the earth. And on the Friday evening, we prayed and we worshipped together, and we prayed about mission. Um, I think that we are a church with a really strong sense of calling um, to mission. And so we prayed for God to use us, to call us, and to equip us for mission. 
Because the reality is we are all on mission every single day. You don't have to be on a mission trip abroad um, or church planting to be a missionary. God uses our everyday situations and circumstances to build his kingdom. So how practically can we have this gospel-centered perspective for our everyday lives? How can we truly live out this great commission that Jesus has given us? I think it starts with asking God to give us his perspective and his insight into our everyday lives. Like I said earlier, um, my husband and I naturally have pretty different kind of dispositions, kind of perspectives very often. I can look at things in quite an intense, emotional, like black and white kind of way, whilst he is very good at seeing the grey in situations and is far more practical. Um, But I really believe God wants to give us his perspective. Whatever our kind of natural perspective is on things, God wants to give us his perspective. So asking the Holy Spirit to guide us and to speak to us throughout the day is what will allow us to be led by God and not by our own perspectives and our own emotions. Um, I work for CCM full time, so I have to make quite a conscious effort um, to involve myself in uh, events and friendship groups and just general stuff that is outside of the church bubble because it can be all too easy and comfortable for me just to kind of stay inside of that. And so this January just gone, my New Year's resolution was to join some stuff um, outside of church. So I joined this, um, joined some stuff. So I joined a book club, um, I joined a gym, I joined a choir, um, and I made some connections. No one has come to faith yet. I don't have like a, a big drastic conversion story for you. Um, But little by little, some connections have uh, been made, and I'm really hopeful for some more. And I walked into the gym changing room this week, just gone. I don't know if anyone here is part of a gym, um, but what seems to be the kind of unspoken rule in a gym changing room in the UK is nobody speaks to anybody, and everybody must stay in this awkward silence. And so last week, I walked in, and I felt this really annoying kind of gentle nudge from the Holy Spirit to tell this girl that I liked her dress in a non-creepy way. And so I've, I managed to pluck up the courage to do this and break the silence in the changing room. I put myself out there a bit and she looked genuinely surprised that someone had spoke to her. Um, and it sparked a conversation. It sparked a small connection. When we asked the Holy Spirit, at the beginning of our ordinary and perhaps mundane days for his guidance and his perspective. We're essentially saying to God, here I am, use me today. This is what we see in our passage this morning, God using ordinary people to further his kingdom. So, so far we've seen that we must have a gospel-centered perspective, even in our pain or persecution. Secondly, we've seen that we must have a gospel-centered perspective for our everyday lives And now as we dive into this last part of our passage, we can learn that we must stay faithful to this gospel-centred perspective, even when perhaps other things look more attractive to us. And verses 9 to 13 of our passage tells us the story of a guy called Simon the Sorcerer. Now this sounds a bit like a Harry Potter character to me, but this was a real first century man um, who everyone in Samaria thought was the bee's knees. Everyone thought he was an incredible man of God. Simon had a whole load of people who followed him round um, and absolutely adored him. But it was because he was a skilled sorcerer. Um, And sorcery, back in the first century, was actually, it was not like being a magician. Uh, The root word for it in Greek is magi, a bit like the Persian magis um, who came to Jesus' birth. But this word magi 
had a lot more to do with manipulation, uh, divination and astrology. So sorcerers had this weird mystic ability to call on the dark powers of this world, something that is actually very much still alive and active in our society today. In fact, it's now become such a mainstream part of culture that one in five people in Britain would say that crystals have the power to bring healing and one in seven use tarot cards to determine the future um, and to understand what's happened in the past. And as believers in Jesus, we must be alert and aware of the spiritual darkness of such things and, and repent, actually, if we've been involved ourselves uh, with them. So we've got this guy, Simon the Sorcerer, who's believed to have the power of God, but actually he's really just doing some crazy things with some dark powers. Um, but I imagine this guy would have felt really great about his day job. Um, he literally had people following him round, marvelling at how great he was. People were comparing him to men like Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament. But then all of a sudden, this guy Philip arrives on the scene and absolutely everything changes. Philip comes to Samaria and, as we've heard, preaches the gospel and takes demons out of people and is healing many. And I imagine Simon the Sorcerer hearing of the kind of traction and attention that Philip was getting and probably feeling a little bit of jealousy. Um, so he went to kind of find out what this guy was all about. And when he does, he hears him share the gospel. He hears about the fact that Jesus is the only way to eternal life, that Jesus is the most powerful being on the planet, that Jesus died for the sins of the world and rose again. And Simon the sorcerer encounters Jesus. He has a moment where he realises that the gospel is true. What an amazing story. Someone who's devoted his life to dark magic simply hears the gospel proclaimed and believes. But how many of us here this morning became Christians and then were instantly sinless? Not many of us, right? Simon is a perfect example here of someone who came to know Christ and was convinced by the gospel and then pretty much fell into sin straight away. It says in verses 17 to 19, Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon sees the power and the authority that these disciples carry, and he thinks to himself, I need a bit of that. I want to show others who I can be. He wants that attention again. He wants to have people marvelling at him. And so he decides to try his luck at buying this power so that he can then perform miracles like the disciples were. And as you can imagine, this does not go down well with Peter, who rebukes him. So fragments of Simon's old life were still there. His perspective was still one of how can I get the glory for myself? If I buy this power, then people will follow me around. Simon is proof that we all need to be forgiven and transformed and made new continually as Christians. Our perspectives will not magically kind of instantaneously change the moment we become a Christian. If we want to remain faithful to Jesus and to his mandate to kind of to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, then we must start by checking ourselves, checking our own perspectives and putting our pride to the side. God wants us to experience the freedom of living lives that aren't about serving ourselves and our own agendas, but lives that are completely laid down and surrendered to the will of God. In that moment for Simon, 
the allure of people's admiration for him and people's approval of him was so attractive that he kind of forfeited his gospel-centered perspective and took on a self-centered one. I wonder what are the, some of the areas of our lives where this can sometimes be true for us. It's so easy to end up even subtly doing things for our own agenda rather than to authentically serve others or to serve God. We exist to bring God glory and not to ourselves. And I felt the challenge of this actually this week. Um, Later this afternoon, we've got um, our Spanish service, uh, which I'm really, really excited about because we've got a pastor coming from Mexico and he's coming to preach. Now, I've been having Zoom meetings with this guy um, over the last two years and he's been helping me out with some kind of advice for how to lead the group. Um, And I have felt this week the temptation to want to like pull out all the stops Um, for this particular Spanish service. Um, Because how great would it look if we had loads of people show up um, and we could show this Mexican pastor that we get get decent numbers um, and the service is really smooth and seamless and it looks really professional. But in reality, if I was to really follow this perspective, I would have to check myself. Am I doing this for God's glory um, to be shown through our group? Or am I doing this because I want this pastor to think I've got it all together, that we're doing well? And I felt the gentle challenge from God this week to reflect on my perspective. Jesus came to the earth to turn everything upside down, to bring beauty out of pain, to bring the extraordinary into the ordinary and to change his people from the inside out. If we want to live lives like the disciples did, that were devoted to the mission of God, we must give him our everything. We must lay down our own perspectives that maybe make us feel comfortable and learn to trust in God's plan for us. Trust that he is working everything for our good, that he wants us, that he wants to use us in extraordinary ways, even if our lives sometimes feel like the opposite. We have a God who gave up absolutely everything so that we could be saved, so that we could have relationship with him. And so now he invites us to do the same. He invites us to take seriously this mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth.